to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, please. We want to introduce our sermon with this text. I'm not going to be preaching the whole time from this text, but I want to begin by reading from Matthew 11, beginning with verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Most blessed and gracious God, we do thank you for the things that we've heard in the past hour of your grace unto undeserving sinners. And we look to you even now for fresh grace, grace to preach, grace to hear, grace to obey. Help us, O Lord, for we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Help us, O Lord, to love you and to imitate your Son, the Lord Jesus. Enable us, O Lord, to appreciate afresh who he is and what he has done for us and what he still does for us, your people. And may even lost sinners this morning come to a saving knowledge, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all 89 chapters, there is only one place where Jesus tells us explicitly about his own heart. Here in Matthew 11, Jesus tells us, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Only in this one place does the Son of God pull back the veil and let us peer down into the core of who he is. And when he tells us about his inner being, he doesn't say, I am austere and demanding in heart. The one time he speaks to us about his heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And this text is something of a springboard for the series of Lord's Supper sermons that I began the last time I was giving you a communion meditation. And it was the first sermon in this series that we are now preaching for the Lord's Supper, a series on the heart of Jesus. Now this statement occurs in the context of one of Jesus' most tender invitations. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this series, as we preach it occasionally at the Lord's table, this is being preached for the sake of those that are discouraged, for those that are frustrated, weary, disenchanted, and downcast. I'm preaching especially for those of you that often will ask yourself the question, how could I mess up so badly again and again? I'm preaching to those of you who have begun to wonder how God keeps putting up with you. Or maybe there is somebody here that is going through such a series of trials, you wonder when it will ever end. Jesus' last supper with his disciples was meant to be a comfort before, he, before the disconcerting and before the fearful events that were about to engulf not only Jesus but his disciples. He comforts them, therefore, at the table. I can think of no statement in the Bible that is so suited, therefore, to give such comfort and encouragement as Jesus' simple assertion, 
I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so I believe that this theme is entirely suitable as the basis of our Lord's Supper meditations. And they take us to the very heart of the one who suffered, who died in our behalf. Now in our first sermon, we began with a description of the heart of Jesus. That was our focus. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And both of these virtues, they are modest in nature. They are not the kind of things that are esteemed and admired among the great ones of the earth. But as the title of Alexander White's chapter on this text, as it describes these traits, they are what White calls our Lord's favorite graces. Now the word praus, the Greek word translated guilt or, or excuse me, translated gentle or meek in the King James, this word is found in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And Peter exhorts wives to nurture more than anything else, he says, the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, First Peter 1 and verse 4. Now, outside the New Testament, This word is used, for instance, of a gentle breeze, of a gentle voice, of soothing medicine, of the mild behavior of an animal that's been trained. And of persons, it means mild or gracious. So this is the first word Jesus uses of himself, the word gentle. And the other word that he uses to describe his heart is lowly. Often this word is translated humble in the New Testament. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But typically, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this literally hundreds of times, and also in the New Testament, which reflects the Hebrew heritage of its language, the Greek word typically refers not to humility as a virtue, as we speak of a humble person, but a humility in the sense of destitution, of being humbled, of being pressed down, of being thrust down by the adverse circumstances of life. The most common way in which the word is used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation, is to describe those who have been brought low, those who have been humbled by their circumstances, those who have been oppressed, those who have been reduced to degradation and contempt. This is the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly. Now, taken together, these traits, they manifest themselves in a readiness to forgive. Jesus says to sinners in this context, come to me, all you were that are heavy laden with sin. Please don't imagine that you've sinned so many times that you can't come to me and I'm going to reject you. Don't imagine that. I didn't come all the way from heaven, he says, just to condemn you. You were already condemned. I came to save you, to forgive you. I came to provide forgiveness and grace to the people that need it the most. My heart is full of tenderness. My heart is full of compassion for you. And knowing full well about all your sins, I beg you, I entreat you to come to me. Dear ones, come to me, he says. I will never, never, never cast you out. And the heart that we've been describing is also manifested by a readiness to endure. There is in Christ's heart a willingness to endure even further offenses. 
And isn't this implied in that first adjective, gentle or meek? A perfectly gentle or meek heart is not provoked even by repeated sins and provocations. Jesus says to you, I am willing to bear with you as long as it takes. Even though you sin against me seven times, seventy times, as long as you come to me again and again, asking for forgiveness, asking for grace, asking for help not to do it again, I will forgive you. I will give you grace. It's a readiness to endure, especially as we see it in this context. And his heart is also manifested by a readiness to receive. If it says anything to us at all, this second word lowly tells us that he's willing to receive and ready to receive the lowly, the outcasts, those that are the rejects. He says to every one of us, I'm willing to receive the lowest, the poorest among you, the most obscure, the most despised, the most ignorant, the most rejected among men. I welcome with open arms. Don't imagine that I will be embarrassed over having those that are looked upon as losers in society, as my disciples. I didn't come to hobnob with celebrities and billionaires and the powerful. I am the friend of sinners, the outcasts, the rejects of the world. Don't you remember how I lived when I was among you? I was born in a stable. I was raised in a carpenter's home. I never had a home even to call my own. All you of low estate, therefore, all you pariahs of the world, come to me, because I have a lowly heart. I have given you a description of the heart of Jesus. This morning, I want to now move on beyond this abstract description to concrete examples. Instead of examining one primary text, therefore, we are going to be citing many passages in which we see the tender heart of Jesus on display. We're going to catch a glimpse of many instances in which we can see his tender heart in action, what it prompts him to do. Now, at the top of the outlines in the bulletin is what we might call the main proposition of this sermon. No feature of Christ's earthly ministry is more conspicuous than his tenderness concerning the infirmities and sufferings of sinners. Now as we read through the Gospels, we soon see that Jesus was profoundly impressed by the sorrows and the sufferings that have been unleashed on humanity with the entrance of sin into the world. This didn't come before him, you see, as a passing observation as just something that was kind of intellectually interesting. And yeah, we've got to consider this happened back then. It was a matter of deep, frequent, and deep contemplation. The misery of sinners. This wasn't something that was just too painful for him to think about. Something that he quickly averted his gaze away from it. Painful though it was, the sight of this, the results of sin in the world, and the misery that it has brought upon the human race, the sight of it filled his soul. It roused him to do what it was necessary to remedy the evil. Profoundly impressed with the depths of the disease and fully cognizant of the fundamental root of the malady, he actively responded to the dire conditions before him. And he did so 
in the way that only omnipotent, compassionate grace could ever do. Well, as we look at this tenderness on display, you'll see in your outlines that we have mentioned four things. It's excellence, it's appearance, it's prominence, and it's continuance. And we're going to consider this morning the first of those two things, the first two of those things, it's excellence and it's appearance. And without quoting them again and again throughout the sermon, I want to just give credit to Dane Ortland and William Blakey and B.B. Warfield and Octavius Winslow for their insights into this theme. We begin, first of all, with the excellence of this tenderness. And here I have in mind that excellence in comparison to various responses to misery that are found among others. In other words, it's more excellent than the responses of others. There are various feelings with which men and women commonly regard the sorrows and sufferings of others. Starting at the lowest level, there are some men, first of all, that are utterly regardless concerning the misery of others. And in fact, they are among those who willfully spread misery. They not only are indifferent to it, they actually they propagate it all around. And this tendency has been on vivid display in Ukraine in the last two months. Vladimir Putin has ordered the complete annihilation, the complete leveling of Ukrainian cities, irrespective of thousands of civilians trapped in Hospitals and places where helpless citizens have taken refuge have been the deliberate targets of the complete annihilation campaign he has waged. Portable crematoriums have been brought in to cover up the evidence. And when soldiers couldn't burn people alive or couldn't burn their bodies fast enough, mass graves have been dug in which bodies have been dumped. Innocent civilians with hands tied behind their backs and bullets through their heads have been brutally lined up and executed. Now, this isn't the first time this man has done this. This was his procedure in Grozny and in Syria. And he's going to keep doing it. Within his own country, he's executed hundreds of, of politicians and reporters that have dared to challenge his rule. This man has absolutely no concern for the heartbreak that he inflicts upon widows and orphans. Human misery is of no concern to him whatsoever. The only thing that he thinks about is his own glory as a restorer of Russia's former glory under Stalin and under the Tsar before him. So this is the first type that we can speak of in the response to misery. They actually spread it. And in the case of a second kind of person, although they don't consciously inflict misery on others, they are unmoved by the sight of misery. In one of Jesus' most famous parables, the priest and the Levite, they wouldn't have assaulted the poor traveler that's on the road, laying there almost dead. They wouldn't have been the one that beat him up. But when they see this man in his extremity, they, they just leave them on the road to die. They pass by on the other side. They're unmoved. And then coming to a third kind of individuals, and here we're getting a little bit better each time, they can't see misery without feelings of pity, but they're content to allow other people to relieve it. It's a painful sight. 
It's pitiful enough that they might send a few dollars to Samaritan's Purse or some organization to respond to the distress, but let other people deal with these problems in the world. Let others touch the infested, disease-ridden beggars. They'll give their money to help, but they can't bring themselves to give up their easy way of life or their immediate plans to become personally involved in relieving the misery of unfortunate sinners. But now, beyond these three types, there's a fourth type, a higher class of individuals. And these ones devote themselves to search out the misery and to relieve it. The cry of woe so repulsive to others attracts their attention. And while the masses, they tell the likes of blind Bartimaeus to just shut up when, when Jesus is passing by, these ones, you see, they stop like Jesus. They stop everything. And they devote their attention to that one that's crying out for help. And whenever they see somebody in distress, they take it home to their hearts. They make it their own. They can't get it out of their minds. They live, therefore, to lessen that distress. They identify with the sufferer. They dwell with, upon the suffering. And they can't rest until the suffering is alleviated. It is a moral impossibility for them to forget what they've seen. They can't get out of their minds. And they can't go back to their, their personal indulgences. You see, others might drive by that poor woman that's far in the middle of ongoing traffic. They think perhaps, well, she's surely smart enough not to walk out in that traffic. But the lights you see of a Rebecca Hamilton, she can't drive by without just stopping the middle of everything and running her This is the fourth time. Now, do we have to ask, therefore, whose image this last class of people bear? Jesus is the leader among those who are tender towards those in misery. At the head of that company of brothers and sisters that are born for adversity is the Lord Jesus. And even the hearts of the most ardent lovers of men, even those that are his followers and doing what he does, they are a faint replica of the spirit that resides in its fullness in the heart of Jesus. And if we do no more than catch a glimpse of the outward life of the Lord Jesus, even seeing the outward examples, we see someone who went about, as we read in Matthew 4, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now, when we penetrate down even below what he does and what we can see on the outside, when we penetrate down into the deeper principle that impelled Jesus to, to behave this way, we discover what affected him the most. It was not so much that somebody had some scabs on their head or the scales on their eyes. The thing that affected him most deeply was this, man's alienation from God. And God's alienation from man. He sees that it's sin that has brought all these, this misery on the world. And it's this deeper source of misery. This impels this Savior to leave heaven's glory. This is what impelled him to leave the company of angels, the bosom of his Father, and to come down to this world of misery, to take upon himself our lowly humanity and suffer the misery of all miseries on behalf 
of the cross, on our behalf, on the cross. Our misery, you see, it wasn't just an unpleasant sight intruding itself occasionally before his eyes. It wasn't something, you see, that he could just see and that he could just kind of turn his gaze away from. He couldn't get it out of his heart. It was something that he took to heart. He made it his own. He couldn't get, get rid of it out of his mind. He couldn't rest until it was dealt with, until it was removed. As William Blake puts it, the pang of his suffering brethren went through him as if it had been his own. He could no more cease to think of it than a man writhing in bodily torture could forget his agony or act as if nothing were wrong. Now there's a vast difference between the third category of persons I described a moment ago and what we see in Jesus. It's one thing when somebody pities another while keeping it outside of himself, pitying it while giving it a wide berth and something too unsightly for its close inspection, something too odious for their olfactory nerves. It's quite another thing, though, when you take the misery of, of what you see and you take it into the inner recesses of your heart and you exert yourself to lessen and to even remove it altogether as if it was your own trial that you're wanting to get, get, get rid of. And this is exactly what we find in Jesus. It is above all the Lord Jesus, of whom the words of Isaiah 63, 9, 63 in verse 9, are true. And I take just the few words at the beginning of that passage, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Their pain he took to himself. He made it his own. He took all of our afflictions to heart to such a degree that our afflictions became his afflictions, including the endurance of damnation itself. Now this is the excellence of his tenderness. A tenderness that is excellent in this way that it far exceeds that of every other person. Now, having considered the excellence of this tenderness, I want you to consider with me the appearance, secondly, of this tenderness. What Jesus is, he does. He can't act in any other way. What is in his heart is manifested in his life. Now, as we look at the manner in which this tenderness appears in his life, notice with me in the first place, Christ's tenderness to those afflicted with the results of the curse. And here we're thinking about the things that came as a result of sin coming into the world, sickness and the like. As we learn from the case of Job and from the case of the blind man in John chapter 9, not every instance of suffering is the direct result of that person's sin. You can't say, well, this person's really having a hard time, so they must have, it's just karma, so they just get back what they, they did before. Jesus obliterates that teaching. After Adam's sin, the whole race fell under the curse. And this resulted in many miseries that we all share in in various degrees. Some people suffer more than others, but this doesn't mean that in every case they are worse sinners than others. As Jesus walked the face of the earth, all people that were around him were all around were those you see 
They, they, they seize, you see, and they're afflicted in various ways with the curse of sin having come into the world. And his heart is moved with the ravages of sin all around him. Sin caused death. This moves him. And as his heart is moved, he is moved to do something about it. Here I'd like you to just turn with me while you're, perhaps you have your Bibles open still in Matthew. Turn back to chapter 8. Beginning of the chapter. The leper comes to Jesus to read in verse 2. Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what he says is, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus immediately stretches out his hand and touches him. And we see in verse 3, he says, I will be clean. Now the word will in both the leper's request and also in Jesus' answer is the Greek word for a wish or a desire. The leper was asking about what Jesus wanted to do. He was asking about his deepest desire. Do you want to heal me? He knows he can heal me. Will you do it? And Jesus revealed his innermost desire by healing Now flip over to chapter 9, verse 2. We read there, after they crossed over his, his own city and his disciples, verse 2, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And when a group of men they brought this paralyzed man, their friend, paralyzed friend to Jesus, he didn't even ask to notice. In this case, he didn't say, what do you want me to do? When he saw their faith in bringing him, he knew what they wanted. And he says, therefore, to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And before they could open their mouths, you see, to ask for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself to wait for them to make this request. Words of assurance of forgiveness burst out of his heart. And seeing that this was the deeper need of that man, he needed to be forgiven. Sin was what brought, 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 brought all these miseries on the world. He goes to that deeper issue, and he grants full pardon of all of that man's sins. And then to prove that he has authority to do this, he says to the paralytic in verse 6, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And the man arose and departed to his house. And now, let's look at the end of that same chapter, Matthew chapter 9, and verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus could see that the multitudes that were gathered to hear him that have brought the sick with them. He could see beneath all the externals. He could see that 
These people have previously only gotten some dry crusts of teaching from the scribes and Pharisees, utterly bereft of gospel truth. That's all they have. And this is what moves him on this occasion. He sees their helpless condition spiritually. Pity ignites his heart, and he gives them, therefore, the words of life, and he heals their diseases. Now let's turn to chapter 14, Matthew 14. The compassion of Jesus comes in waves over and over in Jesus' ministry. Verse 13, this chapter, we read his departure from deserted place. Perhaps it was to pray, maybe to just get some time alone with the Father. But the multitudes, they hear him, and they follow him later. And in verse 14, Matthew 14, 14, we read this. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. And then in chapter 15, in verse 32, we read, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. He has compassion, you see, on their gnawing stomachs. And then, and here I'll just quote a few texts, in Mark 6 and verse 34, we read what happened leading up to the feeding of the five thousand. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Compassion made them, led Jesus to teach them. Compassion prompted him to heal them and to feed them. On another occasion, he came near the city of the uh, of the city of, of the gate of the city of Nain, and a dead man was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And Jesus could see beneath that whole sea. Everybody's making these ludicrous cries as they did back then, as they wanted, as they had these professional mourners and the like. But Jesus sees beneath all that that claptrap. He sees her. He has compassion on her. And he says to her, don't weep. It might sound a little bit cruel and hard. But after giving those words of instruction, comfort, he raised his son from the dead. We read of it in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 and 14. Instantly he could see the depths of her grief. She's lost her husband. She's a mourning widow. And now she's lost her only son. And not only had she lost her husband, but her only beloved son, and no doubt the only one that was able to provide for her. She was not only destitute of the loved ones, but destitute of a provision. She's overwhelmed, you see, with grief and with trials and with troubles. And again, the word that describes Jesus' inner feeling as he responds to her is the word compassion. And the word that's translated compassion in the passages that we have just turned to, and I've just quoted, they literally mean, they're literally a reference to the, what's translated in the older versions of bowels, or the innards of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from a person's inner core being, 
a person's deepest feelings. It's a word that reflects the deepest recesses of Jesus' inner being. And twice in the Gospels, we are told that he broke down in tears. And in neither of these cases is his sorrow for himself, sorrow for his sufferings. We don't read that he cried out in tears on the cross, for instance. In both cases, where we see him weeping with tears, it's sorrow for another or for others. In John chapter 11, after Mary's brother Lazarus had died, she went out to the tomb to weep. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and he saw the others that were there weeping, immediately he was touched in the depths of his being, and he wept. You read of it in John 11, and verse 35. And then the other instance in which he wept, Luke chapter 19, and verse 41. We read that as he drew near the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city. And as he thought about the terrible judgment that was about to descend upon that city in 70 AD, he wept over it. He literally wailed over it. And in each of these instances, what was the deep anguish that caused him to do? It was the anguish of others. What was it that drew his heart out to the point of tears, the tears of others? Well, these are just some of the passages, by no means all of them, in which Christ tenderness toward those afflicted by the results of the curse are on display. And now, still thinking about the appearance of this tenderness, notice the second thing with me. Christ's tenderness in particular towards sinners. Time after time in the Gospels, it is the disgusting, it is the socially despised, it is the inexcusable and undeserving sinners to whom Jesus' heart gravitates. And for this reason, his enemies, they, they mocked him, they derided him, they called him friend of sinners. Luke 7 34. And when Jesus told the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, it was in response to the complaint of his Pharisees and scribes. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now in all of his dealings with the men and women of his day, Jesus could see that beneath all these maladies, all the sickness that was around him that he healed and responded to, these ills, these sufferings, these miseries were rooted in the spiritual destitution of mankind. And often in the gospel narratives, it's difficult to separate the results of the curse of sin and sin itself as it's fallen on mankind. As we read in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, and he came out, and he came forth, and he saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them, because they were sheep, not having a shepherd, and he taught them many things. But then we don't get the whole picture there in Mark chapter 6, which speaks about how he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. In the parallel passage in Matthew 14, 14, we read, he came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In one passage he speaks about healing their sick, the results of the curse. In the other passage, it's about a spiritual problem. They're like sheep without a sheep. And we have to put these two passages together to get the whole picture. In addition to the miseries of their sicknesses, you see, Jesus can see something worse, far worse, 
their fatal ignorance of spiritual things, their blindness to spiritual things, their lack of knowledge about a true relationship with God, the God of grace, and how they might come into a right relationship with God. He saw their fatal ignorance and their captivity under the terrible dominion of sin, and he therefore began to teach them to correct the seed. Mark chapter 9, verse 36, the stress is laid on, on this same spiritual destitution. When he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were distressed and scattered, as sheep not having a shepherd. They're compared to sheep that have been worn out, sheep that have been torn by the thorns, sheep running here and there, with nobody to direct them and help them. They have now found themselves helpless, fallen to the ground. And Jesus sees them in that pitiful condition, spiritually. Also, we read of the manner in which the spiritual dimension of man's misery drew out his tears. When he saw the uncontrolled grief of Mary and her companions at the graveside, John 11.34 tells us that he groaned in the spirit. And the language that's used there by John is very vivid. It depicts the swelling of indignation that rose up in his heart. He saw the outrage of death and what's done to man. And immediately, when he sees his tears come gushing forth from his eyes, he saw that beneath the horror and beneath the grief of the grave was a worse destroyer, the destroyer called sin, and a combination of rage against sin and weeping at the sight of those that were under its curse. This rose up in his heart. And even more clearly, the sight of his stubborn unbelief in Jerusalem produced even more violent agitation for the spirit. The language of Luke 19.41, it pictures Jesus' soul being convulsed with uncontrolled grief. He wailed over He wailed over the thought of Jerusalem's reprobation. It hurt Jesus in a deeper way than we will ever understand to hand over even hardened sinners to their damnation. He had no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It grieved him. He was, he was, as it were, almost, you might say, devastated by it. He was filled with, with, with deep, wailing death of grief. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that Jesus also has compassion for you when he sees you struggling with indwelling sin. Sin is the cause of all evil. It's the sorrow of all sorrows, the source of all that sorrow. It's the spring of all suffering. Its tyranny and its guilt are so great that it can only be canceled, and its power can only be overcome by the incarnation and by the sacrifice of the Son of God. And it is this in being sin, still with us as Christians, this indwelling sin, this is the baneful root of all of our infirmities. And to the believer that's conscious of indwelling sin, 
This is the greatest evil in his or her life. Paul's anguish cry in Romans 7. This is the anguish cry of every believer. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver from the body of this death? This is the sorrow of all of our sorrows. Our sins. This, these are the ground of our profoundest humiliation and sorrow. Sin's like a gangrene. It's not just a speck here and there on the surface of the skin that bothers us, so to speak. But it's that which it indicates, that which is deep within our system, the existence and the growth of a moral gangrene in our hearts. This is what fills us with distress. It's the corruption that is in our hearts that prompts us to sin. And we never grasp the enormity of our indwelling sin just by looking at the outbreaks of it here and there. These are just the spots you see on the surface of our being. So I don't ask you whether you confess and mourn over your sin and its external manifestations. I know every one of you that's a believer does that. If you're a true believer, I know you confess the outbreaks of sin in your life. But our deepest sorrow is sin. It ought to be over the consciousness of its indwelling principles, of its power in our hearts. This is what should break us. As we come to the Lord's table, this is the cause of our profoundest humiliation before God. This is the cause of our deepest anguish, the thought of our depraved nature that we still have, the attraction that's in our heart to evil, the corrupt imagination in our minds, suggestions that come. We, we can just all, all in our own minds provoke ourselves to sin. The poison of the impure fountain of our affections that, that are attracted to this sin. This is our great burden. We carry this horrible thing called indwelling sin. We carry it everywhere. When we lie down and when we get up, it's still there. We carry it even to the most sacred places. It intrudes our most hallowed engagements. It's constantly prompting us to evil. This is the sorrow of all of our sorrows. And the mortification of this evil is the battle of all of our battles. And the more we struggle against it, the more we understand that it's not enough just to merely filter out some polluting streams that come from outside to tempt us from sin and to corrupt our minds and hearts. More and more we long, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Matthew 8 and verse 17 tells us that Christ took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. It's a profound statement. He took our infirmities. He bore our sicknesses. And it's no small source of consolation to remember that this worst of all infirmities this was taken to Jesus heart it didn't pollute him but it burdened him he took it to heart 
And just as he took the sicknesses of sinners home to his heart, and he was moved with compassion as if it was his own sickness, he came to take the greatest of all infirmities, our sin. And even now he's filled with tenderness. He's filled with compassion for sinners that are sitting in this very room. Perhaps you thought, well, maybe I shouldn't even go to worship. Maybe I shouldn't go to the Lord's table today. I'm such a sinner. He's filled with tenderness and compassion, my friend, for you as you struggle with physical pain, with other trials, but even more so as you struggle with that foul thing that will never fully be gone until you are completely sanctified in death and even more so in the resurrection of the just. So dear brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, above all things, your heart should be to cry out to the Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy, have compassion on me. And likewise, you who are still in bondage to your sin, you whose sins have not been forgiven, I urge you to come to Jesus with all your troubles, to come to him with all your sorrows, and especially the sorrow and trouble of your sin, of your lost condition. Come to him just as sinners came to Jesus in in the days in which he was in the flesh on the earth. And above all, I urge you to cry out to him that he would have mercy upon you on account of the deepest cause of all your, your sorrows, your sin. And know this, young friend, old friend, man, woman, boy, or girl, know this. Jesus has compassion on sinners. While he was on earth, he was drawn to sinners. He ate with sinners. He talked with sinners. He loved sinners. He was the friend of sinners. Why? Because his great loving heart yearned over the lost condition of sinners. And even now, He has compassion on your poor, sinful heart. And just as he wept over the sight of sin and all of its terrible effects upon the earth, his heart is even now moved with compassion for you. And therefore, I would urge you this very day to cry out unto him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he will. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you have sent us such a wonderful Savior and such an example of how we ought to likewise have compassion upon others. But above all, today, we would receive this Lord Jesus that you've sent to us and we would heed his invitation, come to me, all you that are laboring and heavy laden, especially you that are heavy laden with sin, and I will give you rest. Help us to find rest and comfort in his forgiveness and his grace as we eat and drink of the elements that he has provided by way of reminder. And by your omnipotent power and sovereign grace, change the hearts, will you not, of some sinner that is here today that yet are in bondage to sin, that is yet filled with guilt 
unready to, to face you in the last day. Have compassion, we pray, upon such ones and manifest that by saving them from their sins. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.